So I would sign up for a bunch of newsletters and figure out, okay, what's the cheapest place I could actually get to? And then I would have a budget instated so that I can actually do those things. So it's a little bit different from what most people would say, but it, it helps me to travel 27 places because I wasn't beholden to this idea of I wanted to go to this place. It was more of like whatever opportunity comes, I'll just take it as long as it's within me, my means. Welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Other than uh, certain technological problems I had yesterday where the internet and all of cell service went out for hours on end. This was not just like a momentary blip. This was hours on end. And we, uh, we realized pretty quickly how much we rely on the internet for entertainment because you can't watch, you basically can't watch television. Of course, the cable was out as well, but you basically can't watch television. You can't look anything up. You can't order anything online. You basically can't go to restaurants unless you have cash and you certainly can't do any work. So I was very dead in the water at 3 p.m. yesterday. It was jarring. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You just went back to the stone age like instantly. Yeah. Yeah. It was back to my childhood. <laughs> I had to think like, what did I do when I was a kid to stay entertained? I was like, oh yeah, I dug holes in the backyard. That's what I did. <laughs> Literally dug holes to be entertained. Got to do something outside. Got to yeah, go out and... Hey, I mean, you're in a beautiful place, so go go enjoy outdoors. That that makes some sense. That's that I think is the earth telling you, okay, y'all need to get outside, stop spending your time inside, and just really enjoy the outdoors on your vacation. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Va- vacation slash working abroad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, but it, no, but to your point, it was an enforced. Uh, moment of I could not do any work so we had to go do something else we ended up doing some bike rides so we got outside and enjoyed the weather a little bit that's nice that's nice yeah yeah it's definitely a little jarring right when when that happens like I think it's always every monsoon season where like the power will go out and it's just like what do you do yeah like I, I can't work I can't I can't do anything anymore it's like okay I'm gonna grab a book haven't done this in a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing how much we rely on technology, but it's it's back now. Thankfully, everything is back to normal. We've uh, we've jumped forward a century technologically. <laughs> uh, I'm feeling a lot better about that. How did your kids react to it? Because I think right, like at our generation, like we we've known not having all of that, right? But how? Did your kids react? Because that's all they pretty much know. Yeah, they did okay. Um, some of them had already downloaded movies onto their iPads, and so they started watching movies. Some of them had roadblocks on on their uh, on their iPads that didn't like a version that didn't need the internet, so they were just continuing on playing games without the internet. Okay. So they, they prepared. They did, yeah. Yeah, they they for some reason in the back of their minds, they thought, you know what, I could be without the Internet at some point, And I do not want to find myself in that situation without the proper preparations. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> well, talking about uh, people who uh, know how to use technology, we are very happy to be joined today by 
Danielle Desir. Danielle is a well, first of all, it's going to be very difficult for me to describe everything that Danielle is. So I'm going to do my best. And then, Danielle, you can correct the record after I do that. So Danielle is a, a, a writer, a podcaster. Uh, she's a speaker. She is a uh, travel aficionado, a finance uh, expert, certainly in terms of traveling, she hosts podcasts. She hosts uh, groups of podcasts. She hosts conferences about confer- about podcasts. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing like three or four other things. So, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It is always really hard to figure out like what angle to specialize, like what to mention, because there's, just, again, so many things that I end up doing. So thank you. Yeah. So what do you tell people when people ask you, like, what do you do? What do you, what do you tell them? Does it depend on the person? I think it depends on like what I'm there for. So I typically say I'm an author, blogger, podcaster. Um, and I actually just put my notice in two days ago. So now I'm like a full time content creator. So very wow, excited congrats. to add that little blurb in in the mix there. But overall, I would say just content creator when it comes to personal finance and uh, travel. So, yeah. Cool. How did you get into that space? Was it uh, intentional at the beginning or was it sort of something that you fell into? I wish it was intentional because I think I would have been like further along at this point. But it was by happenstance. And I've always had a passion for travel. My family is from Haiti and I would go to Haiti every summer and spend every summer there from like three to like 15, 16. Um, so I've been traveling at a young age and I'm really passionate about personal finance. My parents are both accountants. Like I was the kid that had a retirement account at 15 uh, because my mom was like time and compounding interest, you know. So I've always had a passion for both of those things. And when I started my blog, I wanted to differentiate myself and be able to touch on those two topics. So when I launched a blog in 2015, it was kind of like an obscurity. People didn't really understand why is a travel blogger talking about personal finance and student loan debt and vice versa. Like, why is a personal finance writer talking about her travels and all of that? So it took a while to get people to understand. But I feel like now when I talk about it, they're like, yeah, OK, I need money to travel. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone, I would think 99.9% of people love to travel, right? All of us, that's the one thing everyone says. They wish I had more time, more money to travel. And so it completely makes sense. And then, And how do you work travel around your life, your job, and then how do you do it in the most affordable way where you can still have a phenomenal trip and do everything you want on a budget? Well, let me ask you about that then just a little bit, Danielle, because I think you're uh, you're the appropriate person to, to give us a little bit of insight. And, you know, we work with a lot of clients who are, who are travelers. We have deep connections with a lot of young uh up and coming professionals who do a lot of traveling or are interested in doing a lot of traveling. And as I understand it, you've you've done extensive traveling yourself. So how when you're trying to kind of pick a place to go, first of all, how do you how do you settle on where to go? And then how do you start to work out the financial complexities to being in this now foreign place? Yes. So 
I am totally against the green. So a lot of people would say, pick the destination first and then figure out your budget and work towards that. But for me, I knew that that wasn't going to necessarily work. So I reversed it. I said, okay, I'm just going to have a pot of money set aside for travel and I'm going to follow the travel deals so that I'm not necessarily having to be stuck to certain destinations and having to fit within that, especially if it's outside my means, right? So um, I would just typically save for travel every pay period. So I would treat travel like a recurring monthly bill, like your gym membership or anything else. So it's a line item in my budget. And then I would sign up for a gazillion flight deal services because I I also like don't like spending money on flights. Like I rather spend my money on hotels and accommodations and tours and stuff. And that's all about like value based spending. Like if you know you don't necessarily value something, then gamify it. So I would sign up for a bunch of newsletters and figure out, okay, what's the cheapest place I could actually get to? And then I would have a budget instated so that I can actually do those things. So it's a little bit different from what most people would say, but it it helps me to travel 27 places because I wasn't beholden to this idea of I wanted to go to this place. It was more of like whatever opportunity comes, I'll just take it as long as it's within my means. That's interesting because it it's uh, it's a couple levels of things then. But number one, you, right off the bat, you mentioned that you have a personal budget. So, you know, it may be wise for somebody who is interested in traveling a lot to first of all, figure out what their own personal finances are so they know what budget they have to travel. Uh, and then number two, it sounds like you you created a bit of a system to sort out the cost for different uh potential destinations that might fit into that budget. And then it sounds like you have an idea once you once you know where you're going to go, how you're going to use the budget, almost a budget for the budget of the travel amount, how you're going to use it in the destination. You have quite a system. Yes, I think it's important to be organized um, and knowing your finances is like so important, not only for travelers, but just a general life skill that it helps you to be clear on where you're going and what you're going to be doing next. So in my budget, there is a line item for travel. And I actually, over time, I actually have, and I call it my travel fund. So I actually have two travel funds. So these are two separate bank accounts that are devoted solely to travel. And now that I have a partner and I'm married, there's like actually two different buckets. There's like the dream destination, like the honeymoon or like something that really big anniversary, which is a different mindset in a different bucket versus just let's go to Disney next year or let's go to Austin or something else. So I usually have a short-term travel fund that's more for spontaneous things. And then I have a more long-term for those big life milestones or things that are really big and important. And for me, when I first started saving for travel, I just started off with $25 a pay period and I would get paid like every two weeks. Cause at the time I had student loan debt. I was just like, you know, my mid twenties, just trying to figure things out. I didn't have the funds to really carve out thousands of dollars for travel, but I knew if I started off, I would be building the habits to be able to do so. So I'm always a big proponent of just save something and make it consistent. Um, and saving doesn't necessarily have to be this huge arduous task that I think a lot of people think it has to be. Um, and I also think that if you're the kind of person that's looking for those deals, 
when you have the funds in the side reserved for just general purposes for travel, you're able to be more flexible. Uh, so those are some of the things that have helped me for sure. So how do you sort through all the deals? I know that's a big thing. I've, I've signed up for quite a few different newsletters and, and sometimes it's just trying to figure out which ones are the best ones. Or also I know when you're just like Googling things out there, right? You've got like the Google algorithms that everyone says start to play against you, right? When you start searching for certain flights, Google knows. And so you're actually, you're kind of working against yourself in terms of finding the best deal. So kind of how do you sort through all of that stuff? Yes. So the reason why I subscribe to everything and anything is to establish a baseline. So you want to know, and that's for me what it's about being an informed financially savvy traveler is you need to be aware of what prices are and how much it costs to actually go to a destination. So you're when you're signing up for these newsletters, it's a fact finding mission. So you can say, I typically want to go, let's say, to Puerto Rico. Um, I've never been to Puerto Rico. I never really researched about Puerto Rico, but I'm going to start to keep an eye out when I see deals to Puerto Rico. What's the price? So because I've been doing this for so long, I will not, I refuse to pay for before pre-pandemic, I refuse to pay anything above $350 for Europe because I kept on seeing over and over and over from New York City flights to Europe that were at that cost or lower. So I use it as a fact-finding mission for me to be in the know of, generally speaking, the baseline of how much I'm willing to spend when something's on a deal. Everyone says deals, like one of those catchphrases, but it's up to you to know if it's truly a deal and it's based off of seeing those offers over and over and over again. And then do you use those same techniques for all aspects of a vacation? So in terms of the flight, the hotel, excursions, cruises, all of the different things in there? I would say no, no. So my preferred game of choice is the airlines. So I think it may be difficult if someone's trying to plan a vacation to be like really hands-on on everything. So I would say pick a few things that you're really excited about when it comes to travel planning and then zero in on that. So I'm typically trying to gamify my flights. And then I would do the typical like trip advisor for my hotels and or look at what points and miles I've accumulated over the past years to see if I can even just get it on my points and miles instead. So I kind of try to do that now. So flight deals paired with points and mile hotel stay, if possible. I'm taking yeah, notes really, here. Yeah, seriously. Very, very interesting. Very good. Very good information. All right. So let's let's assume that we have settled on the destination. We've settled on what it's going to cost. We've basically settled on what we're going to do there. If, particularly if you're going to a foreign country that doesn't use U.S. currency as a normal currency in transacting business, you know, what are some of the the financial money issues that people need to like keep in mind so that they can plan for before they get there? Because once they get there, it may not be quite as uh, convenient to sort those things out. Yes. So currency is so important and knowing what the exchange rate, generally speaking, is so key because depending on where you're going, if you're a U.S.-based traveler, it may be more expensive or cheaper depending on where you're going. Um, so I would look at a site called Numbio.com, and that's a great site because it just gives you generally how much things cost at a destination. 
in real time based off of current travelers there right now. So it's like eggs or like a mid range budget for like dinner or something like that. So that's really helpful. So then you can start to piece together the different categories that you are interested in. The other thing I would definitely say is if you are traveling abroad, make sure you have a currency app on your phone with you. So one of them that I like is Oanda or Oanda, O-A-N-D-A. And whenever I am about to make a purchase, I'm always looking at the app and seeing, okay, what's the currency conversion rate? Like, does this sound like something I'm actually willing to spend, right? Um, Just because you're on vacation doesn't mean that you have to throw out all your values of spending out of the window. So that's really helpful. And then thirdly, I would say if you are someone who brings credit cards with you when you travel, make sure you're bringing a card that has no foreign transaction fees because you do not want to get penalized for each swipe that you do. And you also want to make sure you put an alert um, with your with your bank or your credit card union so that they know that you are abroad. And I like to bring a few cards just, and then I put them in different places. So if something goes wrong, I still have like a backup card that is helpful. Um, I also think that it's important to do research to see if the destination is really a card centric place. For example, Iceland, you can pretty much pay everything with card versus when I went to China, American cards were not a thing. So you have to know this ahead of time so that you can either determine, okay, I'm going to bring my cards or I need to bring all my cash with me um, or plan to bring my cash with me too. So I think it's, it's definitely worth considering um, and being aware. It doesn't have to take you a lot of time, but make sure your credit cards are in place. Make sure you know what currency they use. And if it's like, if it's a European currency, most likely your local bank may carry it. So if it's like the euros, Um, or the pounds. But if you're looking for something, you know, not typical, then you may have to order it. So I just kind of threw a lot of things out there for you. But there are kind of a few things to consider when it comes to traveling abroad, for sure. Yeah. So, well, let me let me break some of those down just a little bit. So the one, the first one you mentioned, I think, was the currency exchange rates and having an idea of, of what the right rate is. And I think people also assume that when they're abroad, and they're gonna exchange rates that they're actually getting the right rate. And so having an idea of what the real rate is could also sort of help you avoid shucksters who might wanna exchange money for you for something that's not quite fair market value. Maybe, you know, it may not be as much of a problem in more developed places, but in less developed places, money exchanges are much more important as a as a daily part of life because, you know, they people might wanna hold on to U.S. currency as sort of their savings, but then they're converting into local currency to make small transactions. And so making currency exchanges is a, is a constant and getting that number right then ultimately can save you money. Yes, absolutely. Very, very important. The other thing that you mentioned was uh, making sure you understand how people transact business. So how do you go about sorting that out before you go? Do you just sort of dive into the blogosphere and try and get as much information as you can? I do. So I like to use Pinterest. Um, Google could be a little bit, uh, a little outdated sometimes. So what I would just do is I would just search in Pinterest for my destination um, and type in, let's say, destination currency or how much does a trip cost to said destination on Pinterest. And these are typically bloggers who are just being very candid and transparent about how much it costs. 
So one of the things that I do on my blog, thoughtcard.com, is every trip I go on, I break it down. So I break down all my expenses so people can actually see for a mid-range traveler how much things cost and look at that. Uh, look at the financial section where they're talking about the currency and the costs and, and generally things, tips, financial tips for when you're traveling. Yeah, excellent. The the other thing that you mentioned was credit cards. And I think if you're an American-centric traveler, you probably don't realize that if you use your, your normal American card across the border, your, your company very likely is going to charge you a fee to do that. And if all you did was just told them, send me the international one, and they just send you the international one for free and you use that one, they won't charge you the fee. Like they're just waiting to charge you that fee when you don't know that there's a landmine. <laughs> I have, I, and I'm speaking from experience because I have had that issue because I, I traveled to Canada quite a bit, at least pre-pandemic. Um, and I've had that issue in Canada where you can use a card everywhere. You don't need cash. I almost never use cash in Canada and you can use all the normal apps. You can use all the apps, but if your app or, or your transactions are tied to, or at least for me, was tied to my normal U.S. credit card, I always got charged a fee, and then I'd have to fight the fee when I got home. So I did myself certainly a lot of favors by just getting an international card and then using the international card there and then saving myself all the phone calls with robots. Yes, I totally, totally, totally agree. And what I try to do when it comes to credit cards, I make sure that I'm bringing the card that offers the most cash back or points and miles for typical travel expenses and restaurants. So I want to get three to five, maybe even 10 times the cash back. So I'm making sure I go through my wallet and make sure that some of the categories like travel, transportation, food are you know more than one times. And then I double check that there's no foreign transaction fees. So those are the quick things I do. Yes. So we saw after this last year that very um, crazy things that no one would ever expect could happen, like a world pandemic. And so a lot of people I know, especially when you're doing foreign travel, always consider travel insurance and whether or not that's a good investment. And I think a lot of people if they book trips in, let's say, January of 2020 or at the end of 2019 and got travel insurance, hopefully if it was a good policy, that was a good investment. But what do you think overall in terms of going forward, whether or not someone should be investing in travel insurance? I think especially these days, things can just happen that we don't predict even more than you know before. Um, so I would definitely consider it, especially if you're traveling abroad. I typically don't get travel insurance. I'm just like usually like, nope, I don't want to add the $25 on the on the trip. I don't want to do it. So that's a personal preference. But when I start traveling abroad, I would definitely be very aware and and definitely try to get something outside of what my usual credit card covers. So for sure. Yeah, and we've seen it before where some of our clients, it's it's really knowing the policy, right? You, you think travel insurance, oh, it's going to cover absolutely everything, anything that could potentially happen to me, my luggage, my family. And it's not. It's, it's really looking at the policy. A lot of policies you have to add on, you know, extra bonus packages or whatever to cover certain life events. Um, for example, if someone, if you got pregnant before your trip and you booked it out a year in advance, pandemic sometimes wasn't going to be covered under a lot of policies. And so I think that's a really big thing for anyone who is a little concerned. Maybe they haven't traveled abroad very often and they're just, you know, they want to have that extra reassurance, but it's really looking at your travel policy and making sure that 
it is a very broad policy and covers a wide range of events. Yeah, the that fine print, it turns out, becomes important when you try to claim on the policy. And uh, the insurance companies are not necessarily inclined to read the ambiguities in your favor as the the insured. So people should be aware. That's the that's the lawyers in us speaking. We can't help it. <laughs> the other well, the other um, the other thing we've kind of that is tied to travel insurance, because sometimes these sorts of these things, what we've seen go hand in hand is if you're if you're booking your travel through an agency, sometimes travel insurance is required by the agency either because it will make themselves feel better or feel like they're protected or maybe they have a deal with uh, some insurer out there. I don't know. But what if if somebody is not inclined to do all the research and have all the systems, Danielle, that you uh, that you use, do you encourage people as a general proposition to use agencies or are you are you not as high on those? I think it depends. So pre-pandemic, I was only a DIY traveler. I would do everything myself. Uh, but I recently, when I actually my trip to China, I was spent 10 days in 2019, right before the pandemic, by the way. Uh, and I was on a group tour and I actually really enjoyed it. And I honestly, I feel like if I was on my own, I would have missed so much without having a guide, without having a English translator, a knowledgeable person taking me to several places. So I think it truly depends on the kind of experience you're looking for and how much handholding you think that you're going to need at a destination. Typically, I would not. Um, I would just do DIY. But there's like a term which I'm really in love with these days, uh, which is called private travel. So you can actually be on your private jet or like a private yacht or a private cruise or something like that, which I think if that's the case, if you're looking for something more specialized, then get a travel agent because they have the connections, they have the network, they have the know-how to actually make it happen. And if you do it yourself, it's not going to be as useful and beneficial to you. So I just think it typically depends, but I would usually maybe like seven times out of 10 go on my own but there are times I would want to hire an agency to help me. How about um, for for longer travel banking in in foreign destinations? What what sorts of issues should people be aware of if they're trying to use financial institutions in a foreign country? Yeah, I've heard that it gets tricky. So since I've had a full time job, I'm, I usually just do like short little one week, two weeks, three weeks vacations. So I haven't had much experience with this, but I do know of a lot of travelers who have to figure out what their long term arrangements going to be, because after a while, the banks are going to be like, you're no longer in the U.S. So we're going to disactivate, you know, deactivate your card or deactivate your bank account. So that's something to definitely be aware of. I wouldn't be like the best person, though, since I haven't done it yet. <laughs> We see we see issues aside from certain tax and IRS compliance issues, which we could bore everybody forever with. But it, one of the issues, practical issues that we see for people who who are really probably more in the almost expatriate side of things than the traveler, vacationer side of things, who are living more permanently in foreign jurisdictions, that sometimes for Americans to open up an account in that jurisdiction can be challenging, if not impossible, just because we have some 
difficult rules that we impose, we the U.S. impose on foreign financial institutions that take in American customers and a lot of foreign uh, financial institutions picked up on that and decided, oh, great, we just will not have American customers. So there you go. And so that could we've seen that a challenge now places where um, Americans are more frequent expatriates or more frequent long term uh, vacationers or or part time residents. It doesn't seem to be so much of an issue, but in places where you don't have large contingents of Americans and therefore there's not so much of a gain to be made by the foreign financial institutions, uh, we see it. We see it as a real stumbling block for some of our clients. And I know that uh, a lot of destinations now, countries, they're introducing digital nomad visas for remote workers. And one of the incentives that is coming along with these visas is banking opportunities. Um, so I'm curious to see how things transform as we become this more fluid, like global economy of people just working anywhere Um and that currency is just going to be just flowing a little bit more easily um, now that we're working remote. So I'm curious to see what that's going to look like in the future. Yeah, me too. That's very interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to see if those programs persist. I Well, I'm curious to see if they were a success because I don't know that I've necessarily seen, maybe you have heard, but I don't know that I've necessarily heard anything about whether they were really a success. You know, um, if some of the like Caribbean destinations who had these programs during the pandemic were actually successful in getting people to come and, and spend meaningfully. Uh, I just, I've only heard that the programs existed. I haven't heard the follow-up to that. Yeah. I, I know Barbados is an example. We have also Lithuania is an example that they're offering these types of visas, but they're offering these visas during the pandemic. And a lot of people are, are not going to necessarily want to go, uh, at this time. But the fact that they're having this infrastructure, I think is really helpful because when people are ready to go and travel internationally, there's infrastructure already built in so that you can just, there's an, a different avenue than just being a tourist. So uh, emerging, emerging trends for sure. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, while we have you, I, I really wanted to ask you about some of your uh, other work, because as I tried desperately to introduce you in all of the many ways that uh, you show up in the world, uh, one of those ways is you, and I'm probably butchering this, but or, or your role in this, but you organized or helped organize the Women of Color podcast, which is really a collection of podcasts. So can you can you walk us through kind of how that came about and what it's all about? Yes, yes, yes. So that's like my second hat. <laughs> my travel and personal finance brand is one, and then my second hat is WC Podcasters. So in 2018, Spotify had released a bootcamp opportunity where they were looking to fund and help promote women of color podcasters who had an idea. And I have admired podcasting for a really long time, but I was really nervous about podcasting alone. So I never started. And this opportunity came out and I'm like, I'm going to apply. I didn't even apply with the show I have now. It was like another idea for a show, which is very interesting. But at the bottom of the application, they asked a question that said something like, what would you want to see change in the podcasting industry? And I'm like, well, I don't really know. I'm a listener. I don't know. Um, but just looking at Apple's top 100, I could tell that there weren't that many women of color on the list. So I said, I would love to see a space created for women of color to feel supported and, you know, to see each other. 
And I applied and I kind of let it go. I did not mean for me to start it. I just meant I wanted to join a community, uh, you know, that would be like this, which is, again, it's funny. I feel like I manifested this at the end of the day. Uh, but uh, May 1st came around and Spotify was supposed to announce the winners and they actually did not announce the winners. Um, and but I was on Twitter. I'm always on Twitter, Twitter. And I was like trying to connect with people and trying to see what was happening. And I just saw hundreds, if not thousands of women talking about this boot camp. And I was so surprised because by just looking at these top lists, I just didn't think that women of color were podcasting um, and I wanted to connect with them. So I created a Facebook group haphazardly, <laughs> put things together and just opened the doors. And I think like by the first month we had like 500 uh, people in there. So while we were kind of like getting to know each other and learning, um, Spotify did come back and say that there were over 18,000 applications for this opportunity which they needed time to like get get through and do all of that. And it's awesome because every year they offer this boot camp and the beginning was just America, but I know they have done it in Australia. They just launched in India this year. So they're, you know, they're continuing on with this mission. And my goal has always been to capture that original 18,000 from 2018. It's like an impossible task at this point, but it's still like, there's just a lot of interest by women of color who want a podcast, who want to use their voice. And this medium is like, just a great opportunity. Um, so over the last three years, we've extended, expanded to, we actually closed on the Facebook group, but we have like a new community outside of social media. We have a membership with trainings and fireside chats and being able to connect with industry folks. We have a blog, a job board, a directory. So just really being a resource for podcasters who want to get their word out there and who want to make it into a craft, right? Who take it seriously. So that's the long story of our three-year journey. That's awesome. I love that. I, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right when you're just looking at, um, you know, different podcast venues and, and how you sort through. And I think I will say, I think they've gotten a lot better on that now where now they've got a bunch of different categories you can search for. But when podcasts originally first came out, it's just kind of, you look at the top list and that's really all there is, right? You, you couldn't really search to see what you're truly trying to find. Um, and so I definitely commend you. That's, that's amazing work that you're doing and it's definitely been needed. Thank you. Yeah, discoverability is always has been an issue for podcasts and podcasters and they're inching. But I feel like I just would like it to be like blogs, like you just could type in something and you find what you need. Right. So hopefully um, discoverability improves over time. So what is, you know, kind of what is your vision of that group going forward? Are, are there things you're trying to, to launch that are not launching or you're planning on launching? Yeah. Yeah, I would love to see a directory like just like Rachel is talking about discoverability, being able to be like we have a place where folks can add their podcasts in and improve discoverability. That is a huge project that I would love to work on. And I just really love strategy. I love learning. I love bringing people together, helping them to improve their craft. So I don't see our mission changing much. But definitely adding a directory, I think, would be really helpful to get our names out there even more. Yeah, I, I think that would be really cool. And I, you know, I, sorry, I, I didn't mean to uh, imply that you need, you're trying to, like, change the whole thing or really get the whole <laughs> no, wheel, okay. uh, which, which okay. you certainly wouldn't need to do. But I think that, um, I mean, I'm a huge fan, certainly from from our perspective, like, professionally of just being 
being focused in on a subset of the world, be it a, a very narrow subset of the world and in, in our arena, and then trying to just provide as much value in that subset as possible. And podcasting is a very narrow subset of the world. And then to then focus it even further in on just women of color podcasters, like that's a even smaller, narrow subset of the world, but there's so much value that you can bring in that, in that niche. And I, I think it's really cool that you guys are doing it. Yes. I'm excited. Every day I wake up and I'm just like, Oh, just like, I love, I get, I get to do the things that I enjoy. So I feel so blessed and excited to continue working with the community. Yeah. Well, we, we commend you and, and wish you the best of luck. Of course, if people are trying to find you, uh, Danielle, what is the best way for them to do that? Yes. Connect with me over on my website, thoughtcard.com or my, and, or my podcast, the thought card podcast, which is an affordable travel and personal finance podcast about traveling more and building wealth. And I would say if you're on socials, I enjoy tweeting. I'm at the thought card on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm at the Danielle Desir. And lastly, I do have a book called affording travel that goes step by step in detail, shares my entire strategy for saving for travel And I also have a book called Traveling with a Full-Time Job because I was there. I needed that. (laughs) And I put all my tips in that book as well, which you can find anywhere you purchase books. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, we will obviously put uh, your contact information in the show notes as well so people can find it there. Uh, We really appreciate you being on as probably anybody who's made it to this point in the episode can tell. You know a lot about strategizing, as as you've said several times, and uh, trying to be systematic and smart about making financial decisions, certainly with with traveling and many other things. So uh, we really appreciate your time and expertise, Danielle. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was such a great time. Thanks again. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much. Thank you.